Thank you. Yeah, it was a, a torrential rainstorm. It was funny. Well, it's not funny, actually. Um, I shouldn't, that's the wrong words. Uh, when we were driving, we saw a car that had slid off the road, and uh, it was raining so hard that in the ditch there was a new lake that wasn't a lake, I'm pretty sure, before yesterday. Um, but the car was like half gone in the ditch, like you couldn't see half of the car because the rain was so heavy. Um, so, but they were pulling him out, and the guy was safe. It looked like everything was fine. But I was just like, man, it's, it's, it's not every day in Kansas that you see a car like underwater on the side of the interstate. So um, that was a new one for me. And it reminded me, this is like an icebreaker story for me. It'll help me get my nerves down. When I was in, right after I graduated from high school, I uh, signed up to do this summer internship um, through the Missouri Baptist Convention because I grew up in the SBC. And uh, the Missouri Baptist Convention uh, had me placed south of St. Louis in a um, uh, county, that's the word, St. Clair County, south of St. Louis. I grew up near Fort Leonard Wood, which is like middle of southern Missouri. And so when I, when I left for my internship, I remember getting in the car. I'm driving. I'm all by myself. I'm really excited. And it started raining. And it was raining like it did today, just like pouring down rain. It was so heavy. Um, and I was young and foolish. And I had um, an old flip phone, which was useless for anything except for making phone calls, but an iPod video with the click wheel, which some of you guys still use, maybe, or at least are familiar with. And I remember, I remember even this, the, the album that I wanted to listen to, and it's raining, and I'm like clicking through it, trying to get to the album that I want to listen to. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was by a band called Showdown, which wasn't that great. Um, and and but I remember like getting it on, and as I got it on, my car started to hydroplane on the interstate. I was probably going too fast. You're on I-44, and and my car started spinning um, to the point where you could like see the other cars coming at me, if you can imagine that. Um, and I knew it wasn't going to end well, uh, but then it somehow corrected and slid off the shoulder of the interstate um, on the the left side. And semi-trucks are, are, are whooshing by, and out of nowhere, you know, I'm just like taking stock because you're in the median, in the ditch. There was not a new lake there, thankfully. Um, and uh, you're like, <sighs> you know, like, what do you do? Do I call my parents? I don't, I, my car, it turned off, but it restarted. Um, and then this guy stops, and he stops on the shoulder, and he runs over, and I think he's going to uh, help me because that's what people do. Um, in situations like that. And so he runs up to my car and he knocks on the window and I'm just like so grateful for this guardian angel that showed up out of nowhere. Um, and I roll down my window, uh, crank, uh, of course, and, and the guy is just like, wow, I cannot believe that happened. The last time I saw a car do that, they, and he pointed to an overpass, which was like right in front of me. He's like, they hit the overpass and their car exploded. Um, <laughs> And then the guy said, are you okay? I said, yes. He got in his car and he left. Um, <laughs> and that's, yeah. So I, then I called my dad and told him where I was at. And I realized in that moment that I'd been driving for two hours the wrong way on I-44. Um, so I went home and stayed the night at my parents' house and started a day late in my internship. Um, that's my story. And now I feel better. So... Um, now we will read the passage, Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, thankful for the opportunity to be here worshiping with the saints of Manhattan Press. Lord, and I ask today that as we come to your word, uh, that you would speak to us, that you would even speak to me and speak through me, Lord, and you would use your word as you say that you do, to refine us, to challenge us, to equip us, to give us hope. To, to point us at Christ, our Savior, so that we can marvel in his grace and trust in it all the more so. It's in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen. So this passage um, it is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I, I remember the, the first time I, I think I, I read through it and really got to like just marvel at the beauty that was found here. Um, was when I was in, in college and interning at a church um, that I eventually became ordained at, Warner Road Baptist Church, which is in the, the Brookside area of Kansas City. And, and, and I remember as I read this, just thinking about how beautiful the gospel is here. Um, later on, when I was in seminary, my, my grandma passed away, and I had the opportunity to, to preach at her funeral. And as I did that, I decided this would be the perfect text, this and, and the, the text that surrounds it in the book of Revelation, because it is such a, a beautiful hope that is, is pictured here in this passage. And so today, as, as we come to Revelation 21, 1 through 8, and, and, and try and find what the Lord has for us, um, my goal is that you and, and, and myself included, that we would be able to, to see the beauty of what has been accomplished for us and is promised to us in Jesus. And that because of that, we, we could live in, in such a way that we think eternally and, and as much as we possibly can in this fallen world. Um, I have three points, all R words, so it should be easy to, to, to settle into your mind. Um, the first is restoration, the second is recreation, and the third is realization. So restoration, recreation, and realization. And restoration, looking primarily at verses 2 and 3 here, there are, there are two beautiful sets of, of imagery that 
is presented to John, the apostle, as he's, he's recording this vision. And the first is this, this wedding day restoration of the bride with her bridegroom. Now, this is, this is imagery that is, has been used throughout Scripture, that God uses um, to, to symbolize his relationship with his people, uh, of a bride and a bridegroom. And yeah, I love the imagery that you see here because it's very specific that it kind of hits at something that I would say is, is transcultural, um, this idea of the bride presenting herself on her wedding day to a, a bridegroom. And I know in, in our Western culture, um, you know, we do it typically in a very specific way. I can remember the day I got married, it's almost 12 years ago, uh, July 25th, 2009, and I remember that day, you know, there it's like a lot of moments in that day where I could forget a lot of other days or a lot of moments from that day are sealed in my memory. Um, many of you, if you've been married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But there's this one moment in particular that was kind of the, the moment that you build up to and even the way our typical Western um, wedding ceremonies are you know, laid out, if you will, they build up to this moment. This moment where I'm standing in this, this beautiful old church. It, it's a church that, again, I, I said I, I eventually ended up serving at and becoming ordained at, Warner Road. This beautiful old historic church in Kansas City. Lights coming through the windows. I have my, my groomsmen on my left side, the bridesmaids on the other side, the pastor right here. And, and they just come forward. We use songs to kind of, you know, build that suspense. And so I knew that the song had just ended. I think it was, my wife and I were talking on the way here. I believe it was I Want You by Bob Dylan. Um, that shows how classy we are. And, and that had ended. And then there's this moment of silence. And then the door at the back of the sanctuary opens. And right as it opens, I hear the very first lines of... Yeah, out of mind. Yeah, here comes the sun. I know the song, I promise. I just thought about singing it and I can't sing. It's terrible. Here comes the sun starts by the Beatles and it's perfect. And there is my bride presented to me, right? On our wedding day, as beautiful as she's ever been, one of the most beautiful memories of my life. Um, there she is coming down the aisle for me. That is the imagery that John experiences here as the bride is presented to her bridegroom. If you look at verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. It's a transcultural image, like I said earlier. This bride prepared, and this bride is us. It's the church. It's, it's Christ's people who have been prepared, sanctified over the course of time, not just in our current day and age, but for thousands of years. God preparing his people, growing his people, preparing his bride for that day when they will be united with him like none ever before. That's what we see here in this text. The second set of imagery is the restoration of a people with their God. Verses 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Again, this is language that's used throughout Scripture. This idea of God promising to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's, it's, it's becoming fully realized here. 
You see this promise in the Old Testament. It's promised to Abraham. It's promised to, to Moses and to the Israelites. Uh, it's in the Old Testament narratives and the historical books. It's a promise that's put out as a hope before the people of Israel, both while they're in the land and even when they're in exile. It's given to them. This reminder that God will bring them back, restore them to him, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And it's picked up in the New Testament. Even the apostles will use this. And so if you look at First Peter, and Peter does this nodding back to Hosea's words, Peter says this, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I love that. There's a, this line um, by a, a pastor named John Piper, and I, um, I'm actually quoting a friend of mine who quoted him. I surprisingly, as a former Baptist, now Presbyterian, have not read a lot of John Piper, which I think is rare. Um, but John Piper is this, this uh, Reformed Baptist theologian, pastor, and he has this line that says, if it's correct, that he says this, God is the gospel. And I think it's beautiful. And, and by this, what, what he means, what's intended by that phrase, is that the best part of what we get in the gospel, the Christian message of salvation in Christ, is the fact that we are restored to God. That is the best part of the gospel. God is the gospel. That we get to dwell with God himself as his people. Now this is the very thing that, that was lost back in the garden. And it's given to us now through Jesus Christ. You see that, though, in the Old Testament from that point on in the garden, only through this form of like mediators and, and things that separate God's people from him so that they can experience him in part, but they can never truly go back into his presence. You see that like as soon as Adam and Eve leave the garden, there's flaming swords, right, blocking their way back into the garden so they can never re-enter. When you get into Israel going into the promised land or wandering around the wilderness, you have this, this tabernacle with, with curtains in the tabernacle that blocked the people from entering into the very presence of God. So that they could come close, God could dwell there with them, but they could never fully experience God's presence. You get to the temple, and the temple repeats that same thing with these curtains that are there, serving once again as a separation between God's people and Him. And it's only in Christ. We see this in the gospel accounts and his death on the cross that in those moments the temples, the curtain in the temple is finally torn. Right? At last, through Christ, God's people now have access to the holy presence of God. Not just in a room, in a building, but in a perfect world for all eternity. That's what we see here. Now we experience it now in part through the presence of the Holy Spirit. But we will experience it in full one day in heaven. Here you have the promise of dwelling with God and being God, called God's people both fulfilled in Revelation 21, 3. The restoration promised here between God and between us, his people, it, it's beautiful. It, it's a... a Great reminder, I think, of how beautiful, one, our hope is as Christians, and two, how we are already 
even now set apart for that hope, set apart for that. We have and experience it in part now, but we get to experience it in full later. Recreation. Another element that is encouraging to me in this text, I think it's, it's just amazing, is this idea of recreation. And recreation in two ways. The first is recreation of the heavens and the earth. That's like everything that's material around us. It's, it's recreation on, if you will, the, the stage uh, that life exists. That's the kind of recreation that we're talking about here. That's what verse 1 is talking about. He writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, this fallen, broken world and universe, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And this idea of recreation, it's linked directly to the concept of restoration. They, They go hand in hand. I mean, if you think back to the beginning of time, to the, the beginning uh, of scripture, where did man first reside? In the Garden of Eden, right? And what was so special about the garden? What was the, the most special thing about the garden is that God was there. He was there with Adam and Eve. His presence was there. They were with God. But, but after Adam and Eve's sin, the earth along with them becomes cursed, Right? The earth cries out, the earth groans, the earth causes death and destruction. The earth is broken and fallen too. It's not, not what it should be, not what it could be, and not what it will be. And that's why God recreates it in the new heavens and new earth. And I love this, this last part of this verse. Uh, it's I titled the, the sermon this. John's reminding us that just like the, the old things have passed away, he says... This, this weird phrase, and the sea was no more. I have a friend in California who's a pastor out there who hates the ocean. You can imagine living in San Diego and hating the ocean. He does. Terrified of it. Rightly so. There's good reasons to some degree to be very afraid of the ocean. Um, but he jokingly will say that this is his favorite verse in the Bible. It's like, the sea, yes, new heavens, new earth, no more ocean. I don't, I'm confident that that's not what John is experiencing here or, or hearing uh, as, as he's seeing all these things. The sea, it's significant in Scripture. It's significant in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament narratives. It's significant in the Psalms. You see the purpose of the sea, or at least how it's perceived. You see it in the New Testament. Um, you see it uh, in Revelation, the beast in Revelation 13, rises out of the sea. And and it's seen as this like place of turmoil and destruction and judgment that the beast is coming out of. He's coming out of it to attack us. The sea, if you think of the Gospels, you have the, the, the disciples in the Sea of Galilee, twice in the book of Mark it's recorded, terrified because of a storm terrified that they're going to die, right? Terrified that they're going to lose their lives until Jesus calms the storm. Same thing happens with Jonah and the people that are on the ship around him when Jonah's running away from God's will and the sea becomes a place of judgment for him until they toss him out of the boat and he's swallowed by the fish, right? You, you have this idea of the sea being this place of judgment. You have Noah and the ark 
as he's put in the boat that he builds so he can be delivered from the floodwaters, but everyone else in this giant sea is judged. A little bit later, you have Israel as they come to the edge of the Red Sea. And when they come to the edge of the Red Sea, they're terrified because they think they've experienced salvation from Egypt and then they realize, here's the sea that they're never going to be able to cross. There's no way. And Egypt is closing in around them. But what happens? The sea was no more for Israel. And they passed through on dry ground. But what was the sea for the Egyptian army that came behind them? It was judgment, right? It destroyed them. Destroyed Pharaoh and all his chariots and his armies. We stand... Of the, at the edge of the sea, in a sense, right? Looking at the new promised land, looking at glory, looking at life with God unmediated forever, we stand there. And there's a sea that separates us. The sea of God's wrath, his judgment upon us for our sins. And yet here, in the book of Revelation, we hear that phrase, the sea was no more. It has no power, no authority. It's gone. Sin, gone. Satan, gone. Death, gone. Salvation has been secured for us in Jesus. And we no longer have to fear the judgment of a holy God. Now you have recreation, not, not just of, of the world, but also recreation of life itself. The promise of a new life in scriptures, it's, it's part of a, a promise of a, a changed, we see this in this life, a changed disposition that we experience. If you're a Christian, you've experienced this to some degree. An ability that we can now fight sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can now live in a way that brings God glory. Right, and worship him and experience his presence to some degree. That's part of the promise of a new life. It's, it's true that one day life will be, it's true for us, that one day though, this new life will be something more. Like life will be totally new. If you can imagine that with me. And what do I mean by this? This idea that, that pain, that hardship, that suffering, that those are all a result of our separation from God, which occurred in the garden. But John writes, look at verse 4. This is perhaps one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I love that he calls them former things. Those things that we're experiencing now that make life at times so miserable and hard and difficult. They're former things in the next life. They're not a part of it. We won't experience them anymore. This is a kind of a side note. One of my favorite things about Jesus outside of our salvation that we have in him is the fact that the author of Hebrews tells us that, that when he took on flesh, he could relate to us in every way, yet without sin. 
right? That he experienced sickness, that he experienced hardship, that he was probably discouraged at times, that he had friends die and he wept over them because he knew the pain of death. He relates to us in that pain. And yet in the next life, that pain will be gone, right? Former things. Have you ever been hurt by the sin of others? Have you ever hurt yourself and others with your sin? Ooh, that got louder. Have you ever felt the sting of death or the frustration of, of your mind and body failing? The promise here is no more. Temporary things, not eternal things. You won't have to feel them forever. And it's not just a, a return to like what life was like in the garden where those things weren't present. It's something different entirely, something far better. Imagine with me all the ways that you've faced with discouragement in this life as you seek to find purpose and fulfillment in, in the world around us. And we all do this. A, a new car, a different computer, a different thing, a new job, a new house, a, a relationship, whatever it might be. These things will inevitably, in this life, they will let you down because they're not eternal. They aren't the new heaven and new earth. They're not life with God forever. But God won't. I love this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. How can we know this? Because it's connected immediately to what is before it. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So we have a total recreation. And it is total. If you look at the beginning of verse 5, he starts out by saying immediately after all this, Behold, I am making all things new. Not just some things, but everything. Comprehensive. It's beautiful. Realization. You have restoration, you have recreation, but we also have this realization, and in the sense uh, that these truths are in one sense already fully realized, like fully accomplished, guaranteed, sealed for us. How? How could God speak as them? As if not only will they, they will be, but they already are. How can the one on the throne say, as it says in verse 6, it is done. Lest you forget who God is, we're reminded. He says in verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is the first and last, many of you are familiar with this, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying, I am the A and the Z. I am the first and the last. Goes on to make it clear I am the beginning and the end, right? This idea that God is not like us. He does not exist in time and space. He does not count seconds and days and years. He's outside of all that. He created all that. He has always existed and will always exist. We live in time. So it's foreign to us. We could think about it, but we, we have no idea what that's actually like. Life seems long. It seemed really long when I was spinning around in my car about to fly off the interstate. Like, I felt like that moment lasted forever. Life seems long at times, and some parts especially long, and perhaps especially 
difficult. This is an encouragement from the one on the throne, from Christ himself looking at you and speaking to you and saying, it is done. In a sense, he's saying, I've already delivered you. The battle has been won. It's already over. Can you, can you imagine a greater comfort than the God of the universe speaking those words to you? It is done. He's already delivered you from your sin and from the things which for now seem to be and are for some of us triumphing over our joy. But they don't have the final say. It is done. And he goes on to remind us of what is done. John says this, or he records this, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage or inheritance and I will be his God and he will be my son. This, if you're familiar with the book of John and the story of Jesus, the woman at the well, this is the living water from John 4 when Jesus gets water from the Samaritan woman at the well and then offers her a water that would cause her to never thirst again. That's this. This is the living water if you read to the next chapter in Revelation. It's the living water that flows around the tree of life. And it's the water that sustains every thirst. Not just for liquid, but every thirst that, that secures us for the endurance that we need in this life. That, that satisfies every single longing, desire, and passion. This Eternal water has been made free and available to all of us. And it's those who drink of it who become what it calls conquerors here, who receive an inheritance. We're able to, in Christ, conquer the trials of this world and live for the world to come. I love that in a little bit here, and I believe it's every Sunday, right, that you partake of the Lord's Supper at Manhattan Press, that you get to taste of the living water. When, when you partake of the cup and drink the, the wine or the grape juice, the, the blood of Christ for you, that's a, a tangible, symbolic way in which you're, with your senses, you can actually partake of, in a sense, the living waters. This reminder to you that your salvation has been secured for you in Christ, Right? These are the living waters that are offered to you. And I love that it's given to us without payment. Now don't get that confused with the fact that the idea that it wasn't paid for. But we're not paying for it. I mean that's the, the hope of what we have in Jesus. There's a story that I heard it first from Tim Keller and it's the account of a pastor who lost his wife when she was fairly young, but they had a daughter together. And daughter's name was Margie. And one day they were walking down the street, and he had, up until this point, he said that he had a hard time explaining to Marjorie how her mom was dead, but not truly dead in the Christian sense, in the hope that we have in Christ's sense, right? Had a hard time just trying to communicate that to her in a very tangible way. And they were, they were walking down the street on the side of a street and, and a large truck barreled by 
And as the truck barreled by, she was scared and jumped into her father's arms. And, and in that moment, he had this realization that, that this was a, an, a teaching opportunity for him and for her to experience the hope that we have in Jesus, to understand it. And so he said to her something along the lines of, Margie, you know how that truck almost hit you? She's like, yeah. Well, it didn't hit you, right? No. She's like, well, you know something did hit you. You just didn't feel it because it was actually the shadow of the truck. The shadow of the truck was, the truck was so close that the shadow went over you. But the, but the shadow can't harm you at all. When mommy died, it might seem like she's truly dead, but death in its fullest sense did not hit her. It was only the shadow of death. And he went on to explain that death hit Jesus. And because death hit Jesus on the cross, because he took on the wrath and the judgment of God upon himself for her mom and for her and for him and for us, it's only the shadow of death a temporary thing that we experience in this life that is just for us and for Margie's mom entrance into the next life, right? It's, it's the, the gateway into what is to come because of Christ. Christ paid the price for this water. Christ went through hell on the cross in a sense so that we might never thirst again. It's on the cross that he felt the ultimate thirst in our place, giving up his own life. This is the gospel message so that we could freely drink from the spring of the water of life, so that we could be forgiven of our sins and declared righteous and holy before a holy God. I think where the rubber hits the road for us today is in the combination of all these points combined. We're promised that we'll be restored to God. We're promised that God will make all things new. We're promised that it has already been paid for, that it has been fully realized in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The first coming of Jesus was caused for the realization of the second coming of Jesus. When you understand the significance of all these things together, it directly impacts, I hope, how you live this life. I'm concluding with three short points the first is prioritize the hope of the gospel. Prioritize it. I think this is, I almost wanted to say cling to the hope of the gospel, but I think, I like the, the term prioritize because it, it kind of makes us, it's, it's, it's a command. It is, it's work. It takes work. It does, especially with how hard life is at times. To prioritize the hope of the gospel. This idea that you, a sinner, have been restored to God. And that we have a glimpse now of that in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, of what it will be like one day for all eternity. That should completely change how you delight in the moments when you get to commune with God. It does. Everything now, at least the, the things that we do as Christians that are unique to Christians in this life, become foretastes of heaven. Prayer is a foretaste. It's something that we experience now in part that gives us a taste of what it will be like more fully in heaven as we get to talk to God face to face. Reading your Bible, hearing a sermon, experiencing the word of God is a foretaste of getting to hear God again speak to you. Fellowship and worship with other saints and believers 
is a foretaste of what it will be like to worship God with not just your friends and family who believe in Christ, but every believer throughout every place in the world, throughout all time and history and space. These are all foretastes of glory. So we need to prioritize the hope. Secondly, we need to let this motivate us in the darkest of times. As the psalmist says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. It's, it's easy for me to spend time in Revelation 21, 1 through 8, and, and really the four chapters from, from 19 to 22, just marveling at the, the beauty of what awaits us. But then you come crashing down to the realities of the, the world around us and how life can be so hard sometimes. Sometimes it's wonderful, but sometimes it's so hard, so difficult. That's why Revelation ends with that prayer. At the end of Revelation 22, it ends with the words, Come, Lord Jesus, come. When death strikes close to home, when sin hurts you, whether you sin or the sin of others, when it hurts you, when sickness leaves you weak and tired and sad, remember you have a far greater life ahead of you. A life free of all these things. A life in a world that hasn't been cursed with others who have been given bodies that are free from sin also who will not hurt you or offend you and you won't hurt or offend them in the very presence of God. And lastly, I think this should motivate us to share the good news of Jesus. We need to be aware that there are those around us who don't believe in Jesus. Not just aware of it, but, but motivated by that reality that those around us who don't have this hope that we see here in this text. We believe that we're sinful, imperfect, inadequate people who have been given mercy and grace and love because of what Jesus has done for us. Look at verse eight. You can't, you can't leave off this verse. I like to read it and think about it through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus applied the law to us. It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That verse reminds me of myself and it stings and it hurts when I think of it that way. I know I'm cowardly at times. I know I'm faithless at times. Full of anger at times. Detestable, an idolater, a liar, and more. But when I read verse 8, it reminds me of another passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul writes this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It sounds very familiar. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Praise God, hallelujah. That's me. That's you. 
right? That's the message of Revelation 21, 1 through 8. In the context of, of the whole Bible, in the context of what you see in the book of Revelation, that we are those who are bought with a price. Such were some of you. But now who we are? We're those whose name is written in the book of life. Those who no longer have to suffer but get to experience the goodness of God forever. The godly are the godly because they were saved by the blood of Christ. Everything in here will happen. It will come to pass. We will experience this one day. If you believe the scriptures to be true, you will. But there are others outside these doors, maybe even inside these doors, who do not believe in Jesus, who do not find their salvation in Christ. And this passage will not be true for them. Verses 1 through 7 will not be true for them. But verse 8 will. They desperately, and we too, they desperately though need to hear this message that there is forgiveness and restoration and hope in Jesus Christ. That there is freedom from the brokenness of this world and a purpose in this life that is greater than the things that are for this life, but one that is eternal in Jesus This day will come, but until this day comes, we're called to be the hands and feet of Christ, carrying his word to a lost and broken world. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, it's my prayer, first and foremost, that you will always help me to see my sin before I see the sins of others, Lord, so I could see the beauty of the gospel. Lord, I pray that for all of us, that we will be able to marvel in the grace of Christ because we know such were some of us and yet we were saved, we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified by the blood of Christ. Thank you for that salvation. Thank you that we have such a clear hope that is far better than anything we could experience in this world. And thank you that you give us glimpses of it even now in this life. Even at now as we worship you and song and as we come to the table. It's in Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen.